Some of you will be relieved to know that I'm not going to do a uh, Valentine's Day introduction. Uh, my mind this week was not drawn to Valentine's Day. Actually, it will be evident here in a moment why. My mind was actually drawn to the fact that it's Black History Month. Uh, if you're familiar with the Black Church, you will know the resonance that the, the Black Church in America feels for the experience of ancient Israel, and particularly their release from slavery through the Exodus. Uh, there, there are lots more correspondence, correspondences than just the, the release from slavery. Uh, just as Israel's deliverance turned on Moses' decision to identify with his people rather than the court of Pharaoh in which he was raised, that the black church is deeply aware of the fact that, that the decisions that led to the eventual abolition of slavery and the emancipation of the slaves very much depended on individuals. Individuals deciding to identify with the plight of the slaves rather than maybe the, their own more privileged position. In, in, in America, of course, our minds are the to Lincoln. But if we lived in the UK or were a little more aware of history, our minds would immediately go to William Wilberforce. Wilberforce was the wealthy son of English gentry. He was elected to Parliament in 1780, and by his own admission, his goal in life was his own distinction. He wanted to be famous long before TikTok, right? And listen, he had what it takes. He had political skill, he had wealth, he had connection, he had extraordinary eloquence. And everybody understood that he was on the path to being Prime Minister someday. But six years after his election to Parliament, William Wilberforce was born again. He became a Christian. And he knew at that point that he had a choice to make. Would he continue on his, his path of personal advancement, fame, success, or would he identify with Christ publicly? And especially with the great cause of Christ in the world at that time, which in England was very much understood to be abolition. He knew he could not do both, since abolition and the cause of abolition would actually pit him against the very people he needed in order to advance his career. This winter we're looking at Esther, a book about the providence of God, and one of the things that we're going to see is that God's providence does not mean that there is no cost to the decision to identify with God and his people. Wilberforce went down in history as a hero. But there are countless Christians who have made similar choices to very different results. Results of, of rejection. Results of dismissal, even the result of martyrdom and death. I wonder what it would take for you to identify with Christ in this world, knowing in advance that doing the right thing doesn't guarantee that the right thing will be done to you. What will it mean to identify with God and his people for you? Well, it's to that decision that we've come this morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Esther chapter 4.
Esther chapter 4. This is found on page 435. 435. Uh, We are about halfway through the book, not quite. Uh, And things are heating up. Uh, Let me just again set the scene as you're turning there. The destruction of the Jews has been ordered. Haman has hatched his plot. He has convinced the king. And we have now come to the point of decision for Esther, who is the queen of the Persian Empire, but who is not just Esther. She is also Hadassah, Myrtle, a symbol of Israel's forgiveness and hope of restoration. The only character in the book who has two names, Esther is going to have to choose. Will she choose the safety of her position as queen or will she choose the safety of her people, Israel? I mean, it just so happens she's already got the job. What? I'm supposed to give it up now. Will she identify with her people regardless of the cost? Here's here's the point of this chapter for us today, I think. God will deliver. So throw in your lot with him. God will deliver. So throw in your lot with him. We're going to consider this idea as it's developed over the course of four acts. Act one through four. We're going to just walk through this passage. Each one begins with a C. So it'll be easy for you to keep track. As we do, I want you to consider what it means to identify with God in this world. And what it means for him to identify with you. All right, act one, context, context. Uh, Let's pick it up. Chapter four, verse one. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city and cried loudly and bitterly. He went only as far as the king's gate since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict came. They fasted, wept and lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. All right, you'll remember we left off with the city of Susa in confusion. They were aghast at this cold blooded order of the genocide of all the Jews 11 months from now. And in the tumult of that now, it's as if the author has his camera and he zooms in on Mordecai. Mordecai tears his clothes. You see that there. He, he puts on sackcloth in verse 1. He, he publicly mourns. He's out in the middle of the city, wailing loudly. Now, I read this, and it kind of made me embarrassed, right? I mean, this is so not what Americans do when faced with, with calamity. When, when we're faced with calamity, what do we do? We keep our pain private. We put on kind of this stoic face. But but in fact, this was very typical for Jewish culture and for Persian culture. You publicly lamented in the face of tragedy. This is one of the reasons, just the biblical example, that we've tried to begin to incorporate prayers of lament into our public worship here. Well, in, in the face of this terrible order, Mordecai is not trying to keep his pain and his sorrow private. There's nothing stoic here. He goes into the middle of the city and weeps bitterly. 
And I could stop at this point and, and we could have a conversation about the importance of the public display of grief and the solidarity that we could have together in grief. But, but I think there's actually more going on in this chapter here at the very beginning than just an example of public mourning. In verse 3, look there at verse 3, we're told that all of the people in every province, all of them fasted, wept, and lamented. Now, those are words that if you've read the Old Testament, you know that fasting crops up all the time and lamenting crops up all the time. And there's lots of weeping. But one of the things that's really unusual is that while all those words show up all over the Old Testament, they occur together in just this way, really only one other place. And that's Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Writing many years earlier, the prophet Joel had compared the coming judgment of the day of the Lord to an invasion of locusts. There was an army that was going to come and wipe out everything, just the way locusts wipe out everything. But in the context of that warning, the Lord issued an invitation to his sinful people. In Joel chapter 2, verse 12, which I just want to quickly read for you. Joel 2, verse 12. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. See what's happening. In using those three words together in just the same way that Joel used them, the author of Esther is giving us a framework, a theological framework within which to understand the events of this chapter. The people of Israel are in exile for a reason. They're in exile for their sin. They deserve the destruction that's coming. So how should they respond? Should they just try harder to please God? Should they say, God, please don't do this. We'll, we'll do better next time. Should they point to all the good works that they've been doing as exiles throughout the empire? No, they shouldn't do any of those things. The author is letting us know that Haman's plot is an opportunity for the exiles and for Esther to, in the words of Joel, return to the Lord your God in repentance and in faith. I wonder how you respond, how you understand calamity in your life. How do, you, how do you interpret the various threats to your well-being that come your way over and over and over again? Do, do you find misfortune and suffering or even the threat of misfortune and suffering? Do you find that to be like, well, God's just punishing me again. I must have done something wrong. He's punishing me. Or, or, or maybe you, you experience calamity and suffering and you find yourself thinking, yep, I knew it. God cares about other people. He doesn't really care about me. What if, what if you viewed suffering, calamity, even the threat of calamity, 
What if you viewed it as God's providential warning to you that that judgment is coming? What if you viewed it as God's providential invitation to you to turn to him? Wouldn't that change the way you think about the trials that have come into your life? I think this is particularly true for us as Christians. You know, most of the time we cannot draw a straight line from our sin to our suffering. Sometimes we can. Sometimes sin brings with it natural consequences in the form of suffering. But quite often we cannot. We cannot draw a straight line from our sin to our suffering. But here's the thing, Christian. Repentance and faith are always the correct, though perhaps counterintuitive, response of God's people when faced with threats and dangers and sorrows and suffering in this world. We don't say, we can fix this. We don't say, at least not first, we can solve this. No, down through the ages, what Christians have always said first is, have mercy upon us, O Lord. I think sometimes we look back at church history and, and, and we, we see Christians' response to various calamities and we think how quaint. You, you know, I'm, I, I did my, my doctoral work on the Puritans and uh, it was very typical whenever anything kind of bad happened out there. Maybe there was a big fire in London or maybe there was uh, an outbreak of the plague or, or, or maybe, you know, the crops failed that season. Whatever it was, th- their first response was always, we need to call a day of fasting and prayer. W- w- they weren't thinking that it was their sin that directly caused those things, but they understood that those things were meant to cause them to turn to the Lord in renewed repentance and faith. I think we could learn something from them. I think we can learn something from the context here of the Jews in Susa at the beginning of of Esther 4. Well, that leads us, though, to Act 2, complications. Let's pick it up in verse 4 of Esther 4. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her, and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who attended her, and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened, as well as the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering their destruction so that Hathak might show it to Esther, explain it to her and command her to approach the king, implore his favor and plead with him personally for her people. Hathak came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials 
And the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned. The death penalty. Unless the king extends the gold scepter, allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. All right, so what follows here in this section is this amazing interchange between Mordecai and Esther. They have this quite extraordinary conversation. Mordecai wants Esther to reveal her identity and to plead personally for her people with the king. You see that there in verse 8. He commands her, approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. But there are complications. There are complications getting in the way of Esther making that decision. And I think we can kind of summarize the complications that the author shows us here in three I, I words. All about, they all begin with I. Ignorance, isolation, and impotence. All right, at first she's ignorant. She actually doesn't know what's, what's going on. She hears that, that uh, Mordecai is out there in the public square wailing and weeping, and it alarms her. It, feels, it fills her with anxiety. She knows something must be wrong, but she doesn't know what is wrong. And so she does what we often do when we're anxious, but we don't really know what's going on. We just try to do something to make it better. She sends him some new clothes. Cheer up, Mordecai. Well, that didn't work. Mordecai refuses. So now she does probably what she should have done at the beginning. She sends Hathak to find out what was wrong. Verse five. So, you, you know, note to self, when I encounter somebody who's in distress, the first thing to do is not minimize it and try to just make them cheer up. Right. I probably should ask some questions, understand what's going on. Well, that, that's that's what she do, She does here. She sends Hathak to find out actually what's going on. And that reveals the second complication. I think she's isolated. She's utterly isolated. You, you notice that this whole amazing conversation that feels like two people talking face to face is not happening face to face. It's all happening through this intermediator, Hathak. Now, Mordecai is able to correct her ignorance through Hathak, you see that in verses 6 to 9, right? Hathak comes back and, and, and tells her all of this stuff, explains everything to her. But, but she's still left where she is, in, in the harem, completely isolated, cut off from the action. She cannot actually go to Mordecai. She cannot go out amongst her people to experience what they're experiencing. And that then of course, sets up and leads very quickly to the third complication. She's impotent. She's impotent to do anything to help. She, she makes it really plain there in verse, in verse 11. Look, Mordecai, everyone knows the law. You know the law. I know the law. Everybody knows the law. No one, no one can just go into the king unannounced. There, there, were, there were actually seven people in the Persian Empire who could walk into the king's presence without the king summoning them. They were known as the king's seven friends. We met them earlier, those advisors in chapter one. Haman is now one of those people. Haman is one of the seven friends that can just walk into the king's presence without fear. But not Esther. If she just waltzed in unannounced, 
she would lose her life on the spot unless the king showed her mercy by raising his staff. And it seems that now five years into marriage, his ardor for Esther has cooled. She has not been summoned for a whole month. So what can she do? I mean, you, you can, I'm sure she'd been standing in front of Mordecai. She just would have raised her hands like, what, what can I do? I can't do anything. What are the complications in your life that would keep you from publicly throwing in your lot with God and his people? What are the things getting in the way? Maybe you're here, you're not a Christian, and you recognize, well, the main complication is, I just, I don't know enough. I don't even know what it would mean. Well, we'd like to help with that. Uh, We would love to set up a Bible study for you. Uh, Nobody wants you to throw in your lot with Jesus without knowing what that means. Uh, So no no shame in admitting that you don't know what it means. We would love to help you know what that means uh, by by simply setting up and doing a a Bible study with you, either one-on-one or with a few other people, so that you could understand more what it would mean to follow God in this world through Jesus Christ. Maybe there, there are other kind of barriers. You know, Esther had all these barriers between her and really knowing what the situation was about. Maybe there's some barriers that are keeping you distant and apart. They might be practical barriers. They, they might be barriers related to transportation or finances. They might be barriers related to your family. They might be barriers that you feel internally. Barriers of, of sin. Barriers of shame. All of us at different points feel things keeping us at a distance from God. Because I, I don't know what your, your particular barrier might be that's keeping you isolated, that's keeping you at a distance. But I know that it's just going to stay there unless you tell somebody about it and ask for some help. We would love to talk to you about what those barriers are and how they might be overcome. Your specific issues are likely quite different than Esther's. But I wonder if for most of us, they don't touch the same nerve of fear that she ultimately faced. Well, we're going to talk about that more in a minute. Christian, what complications are keeping you from being more public about your faith? What complications are are keeping you in the closet so to speak. I I think this is, you know, this is what baptism and membership in a church is all about. In in joining a local church and being baptized, we we are going public with our identification with Christ and his people. And so many of you, all of you who are members of this church have already taken that first step. What holds us back from that next step? Those those next steps of, of witness Or service. Isn't it usually fear? Fear of what people are going to think. Fear of what might happen to me if I step out and publicly identify with Christ. Esther was tempted to hide in a safe palace job. Nobody knew she was a Jew except Mordecai. Are you hiding, Christian? 
You know, the place where I'm often tempted to hide is on airplanes. Uh, I, you know, I end up flying because I go speak different places. And, and recently it happened again. Right. I'm on an airplane. I'm flying back from Tampa to Seattle. And um, thankfully, I got bumped up to a higher class of service that was better for my back. Um, and it also meant, though, that I'm just sitting next to this one person and I have I have a decision to make. Am I going to come out as a Christian? Um, we, this guy and I, we got we got to talking. We we th- kind of thankfully, uh, we, he his first question to me wasn't what do you do, because that's always the question that when I answer it, kind of shuts conversation down, and people begin to like try to get the stewardess's attention, see if they can change seats. You know, I mean, it's like nobody wants to sit by a pastor for six and a half hours. Um, Thankfully, the conversation didn't start there. We were just talking about the pandemic and we we're talking about what he did for his work. It was really interesting. We really had this really good conversation. He was familiar with Portland. He was from Seattle. He liked it. He loves Portland. We were talking about that. But I knew it was going to eventually come and eventually it came. So now that we've talked about my work all this time, what do you do? This was about two hours into the flight. And I had a decision to make. Am I going to hide or am I going to go public? You know, because I could hide. I could say, well, you know, I'm in nonprofit work. (laughs) It's true. Totally true. I'm in nonprofit work. I could could say, you know, I'm, I'm an educator. It's true. I've got adjunct faculty status at several different schools, and I do try to educate you guys all the time. But I knew I couldn't say either of those things. And so I swallowed deep and I said, well, actually, I'm a pastor. And maybe because we'd had two hours of really good, like non-threatening conversation and had made a connection, he didn't cut the conversation off at that point. And all of a sudden at that point, it comes out that he'd grown up in a Christian family. His parents had become Christians under Luis Palau's ministry. Um, But he had made some decisions that had taken him a long way away from the church. And he was no longer in the church. And we were able to have a conversation about the fact that that the church is a place of grace. It is not just a place for people who have made no bad decisions in life. It is precisely the place for people who have made some really bad decisions. And he told me, well, next time I'm in Portland, I'm going to come visit. I hope he does. That would not have happened. That conversation would not have happened had I not been willing to go public. I don't like it when people look at me with that, that look of fear in their eyes. Like, oh my goodness, I'm trapped with a pastor. I don't like that. <laughs> I want people to like me. I want people to want to sit next to me. We all have complications. We all have things that make us want to hide. Christian, what would it look like for you this week to come out of hiding as a believer? I think what we all need is some confidence. And that brings us to Act 3, confidence. Let's pick it up in verse 13. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. 
If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. That you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. All right, Mordecai sends one last message in response to Esther's demurral. It's part warning. You and your father's family are going to be destroyed. It's part exhortation. Who knows, right? But what I want you to notice is it's all confidence. Both warning and and exhortation, it is all confidence. It's an extraordinary statement of faith in the Lord, even though the Lord is not mentioned. You know, first, he calls out her cowardice, right? Don't think you're going to be safe in that pretty palace of yours, there in verse 13. Oh, no. But but then, you you know, having having warned her, he, he declares his confidence. Look, deliverance will come. Not deliverance might come. No, deliverance will come to the Jews from another place if you remain silent. I mean, it's striking right at that moment. He doesn't say, oh, no, we're lost if you don't step up. No, he's incredibly, incredibly confident in the Lord's care for his people. Deliverance will come from another place, from another means. Another person will be raised up if you remain silent. But then he calls her to reconsider why she's there in the first place. Who knows? Perhaps, perhaps you have this job, this royal position, for such a time as this. He doesn't overpromise. He doesn't say, oh, I know for sure nothing bad's going to happen to you. He doesn't say, oh, I know for sure you're going to be the means for deliverance. No, but... But he gets her to think, to think in light, not of her own safety, but in light of the Lord who governs all things. Perhaps you've come to this job for such a time as this, not to protect yourself, but to spend yourself for the protection of your people. And all of a sudden, with those words, with that last question that he asks her, we are actually back in Joel chapter 2. I'm going to read those first two verses that I read to you earlier, and then the next verse. And just listen. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. And he relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. So you can offer grain and wine to the Lord your God. Mordecai is confident that God will be faithful and deliver his people. He's confident. If Esther is silent, he knows that that God will raise up someone else, but he's equally confident that God means to be faithful in some way or another through Esther if she steps up. Now, is Mordecai thinking at that moment, when he uses that phrase, who knows, 
just like Joel did. Is he thinking of Joel chapter two? We don't know. We don't know if if Mordecai is thinking of Joel chapter two. He might be thinking of other promises, right? He might be thinking about the promises that God made to the patriarchs, or he might be thinking about the promises that God made to Moses and to Israel. He may be thinking about some other part of scripture. It's not like God made this promise just once. The thing that's significant with Mordecai is this. The fact that he doesn't know how the fasting, weeping, and lamenting of verse 3 will be answered does not dim his faith that the fasting, weeping, and lamenting will be answered. The author, however, who's writing Esther many years later, the author is very much thinking of Joel chapter 2. He knows what Mordecai doesn't at this point, right? Because he's, he's writing it later. He, he knows what Mordecai doesn't know, and he doesn't want us as readers to miss it. God hears his people's prayers. God hears his people's prayers for, for mercy, and he answers them. Of that, we can be confident, even if we don't know how he will answer them. Even if, as a result... God's providence can only be and is always read backwards after the fact. I think the relationship between God's sovereignty and human action, human responsibility in the work of providence is on full display here, right? Esther has a genuine choice in front of her. She can be silent, protect herself, or she can step out in faith. It's a real choice. It's a genuine choice. And Mordecai makes it clear, Esther, you're going to be held responsible for the choice that you make. And yet at the same time, God is completely sovereign. So completely sovereign that Mordecai can say without batting an eye, deliverance will come. It will. I know it will come. He didn't know how. What that means is the providence of God is always read in reverse. We don't know how in advance, how God will work through means, like the means of your decisions and my decisions. We don't know how he will work through means in order to accomplish his ends. Therefore, our choices are meaningful. They're always meaningful. But we also know that he will not fail to work out his promises and his purposes through secondary means. And so when we act, we act in faith. We, we, we never say in advance that we know what the providence of God will do. We, we never try to figure out God's will by, by reading providence. When, when uh, an, an old Puritan Uh, once uh, observed that without doubt the will of God can be read in providence. But then he said, the question is, do we have the text? Can we read it in advance? No, we can't. We're always reading providence backwards, looking back to see how God has worked it out. Oh, but it is that very knowledge 
that allows us to step out in faith today. Friends, where's your confidence? Is it in your control of things? Is it in your ability to see how everything is going to work out or your ability to kind of manage everything because you're pretty sure you can make it all work out? Is that where your confidence is? Your confidence needs to be the only place where it really can be in the character and the promises of God. We don't, as Christians, we don't need to know how God will deliver us to know that God will deliver us. So whether what you're facing at this moment is an immediate trial, there's trouble in your family or trouble at work, or, or maybe what you're facing is the, the prospect of death because of illness or cancer or something like that, or, or maybe just what is on your mind is the last day itself. Christian, the specific manner by which God will keep us safe against that day and all those days in between, the specific manner in which he will do this is basically irrelevant to our faith that he will do this. Because he's promised he will. And he's demonstrated his faithfulness again and again and again. At the exodus, at the return from exile, in the lives of so many of his people, both Old Testament and New. But most importantly, he has demonstrated this to us at the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the face of his promise, in the face of his proven character, therefore, we have meaningful choices in front of us. Are we going to Throw in our lot with him or not? Are we going to repent and believe or not? Are we going to obey in this difficult situation or not? The choice is real. But we have every reason to choose faith in God who will deliver us if we throw our lot in with him. I want to be really clear. That choice is not without cost. And that leads us to act four, the cost. Look at verse 15. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. All right. Mordecai has said it before her. Esther has a choice to make, hide in her Persian identity or throw in her lot with God and his people. And she makes her decision. And you notice once she's made her decision, for the very first time, she commands Mordecai. We've been accustomed to Mordecai giving her commands so far. 
But she commands Mordecai. We, we hear the command in verse 16, and then in verse 17 we're told he went and did everything she had commanded him. What does she command him to do? She commands him to call an assembly of all the Jews to fast for her there in verse 16. And she and her servants are going to do the same. And what does that do? You should be expecting this by now. It takes us right back to Joel chapter 2. I'm just going to pick it up with the next verse. In verse 14, chapter 2, Joel asks that question. Who knows? Maybe the Lord will relent. Verse 15 Blow the horn in Zion, announce a sacred fast, proclaim an assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the aged, gather the infants, even babies nursing at the breast. Let the groom leave his bedroom and the bride her honeymoon chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, have pity on your people, Lord, and do not make your inheritance a disgrace, an object of scorn among the nations. Why should it be said among the peoples, where is their God? As one commentator I read this week observes, for the first time in the story, Esther identifies herself with God's people and responds to Joel's prophetic call to repentance by joining with the Jews of Susa in this fast. And with that identification comes this absolutely remarkable role reversal. Mordecai has commanded Esther for the very last time. From here on out, for the rest of the story, It will be Esther who's giving the commands. And we're going to explore that in the the coming weeks. She's commanding. Mordecai is obeying. But here in these verses, what's really highlighted is the cost of her identification with the people of God. She will act on behalf of her people. She's throwing in her lot. And as she says, if I perish... I perish. Friends, make no mistake. The cost of throwing in your lot with God and his people is the cost of your life. That's not true for some. It's true for all. Here's how Jesus put it. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For some in this life, following Jesus will mean laying down their lives in, in, in literal martyrdom. But for most of us, I think it's going to look a lot more like what William Wilberforce faced. Giving up the very thing that we thought was going to bring us life in order to find life in Christ instead. Friend, you cannot live for man's esteem of you and for Christ. You cannot live for wealth and success and for Christ. You cannot live for pleasure and convenience And for Christ. Jesus' call is to live for him and to find life in him. Now, those other things may come. 
You, you may, in following Christ, also find success in this life. You may find wealth in this life. You may enjoy much of this life. Oh, but for the one who follows Christ, even if those things don't come, the person who lives for Christ knows that she has lost nothing because in Christ she has gained everything. And you may be looking at me and you, you, you may wonder, how can you be so confident? How, how do you know that the cost is going to be overwhelmed by gaining everything in Christ? Friends, the reason I know is what the gospel is all about. Esther identified with her people in order to rescue them, saying, if I perish, I perish. Tim Keller noted years ago, Jesus Christ is the true and better Esther who identified with his people, not just in their distress, but in their sin. And then he said, not if I perish, I perish, but when I perish, I perish for them. To rescue them from their sins, to take their punishment on himself, to, 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 to deliver them from something far worse than genocide, to deliver his people from an eternity in hell under God's judgment. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. That someone who had no reason to want to identify with you or with me did so anyway for your sake. This is why it's worth it to throw in your lot with God and with his people. It's worth it because Jesus has already identified with you. If you will have him, if you will repent and believe, he has already thrown in his lot with you. Joel asked, who knows? God may turn and relent. Mordecai asked, who knows? Perhaps you've come to this position for such a time as this. Who knows? We know. We know. God will turn and relent. For Jesus was sent, not just for such a time as this, but for such a person as you. So let me just ask you, what more do you need to know in order to throw in your lot with him? Let's pray. Take just a moment in the quietness of your own heart. Consider those complications that keep you from throwing in your lot with Jesus. And just confess them to him. Lord, we pray for the grace to be honest with ourselves about what keeps us from you.
We pray for the grace to see more clearly that the fears, the shame or the guilt, the false loves and lusts, all, all the different things that keep us from you. Lord, we pray for the grace to see you clearly, to see you throwing in your lot with us on the cross. Lord, allow us in your mercy and by your grace to throw in our lot with you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.